Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode two, we aren't the world. Good morning, Josh. Uh, Coming to you from the home office today in quarantine in sunny Northern California. Yeah, I'm actually in uh, History Against the Grain headquarters right now. Um, I decided to come into the office, but it's nice you get to do it from home. Does this count as a work day? I think so. Good. Yeah, every day is a work day. So I can can, uh, not do any work later is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, no, this 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 fills your quota. You can you can you can log these hours. I think. How are you doing with your uh, quarantine? By the way, um, eh, I think that about sums it up. Eh, yeah, you know, it's boring. This is a slow motion apocalypse. As I'm starting to think about it, <laughs> not the kind of crisis you'd make a movie about uh, because it'd be too boring. I'm feeling like the prisoner Papillon from the '70s movie. You know, gets thrown into. Uh, isolation, you know, in the famous Devil's Island prison. And after he's been in there for, for weeks in the dark, he sticks his head out of his cell bars and asks the, the prisoner next to him, how do I look? So I wanted to ask you, how do I look? I can't see you. It's the, the so good. Uh, right? You sound, you sound fine. <laughs> you sound like you look fine. That's worth something, right? I feel like I sound fine. Yeah. Yeah. How, how does one know in an age of quarantine? Every, every symptom I have, I'm sure, is, is the one that's going to kill me. <laughs> I was itchy last night. I don't know why I was itchy last night, but I, I thought this must be the new symptom they haven't told us about, but this is the one that's the, the precursor to the, to the bad stuff. Well, I tell you, you sound robust to me. So. I have my coffee ready to go. And hey, we got you know, big, the big nuisance last time is we actually have a podcast now. Last time we recorded, we didn't actually have a podcast. We were just talking into mics and having a conversation. But now it's out in the world. Um, I don't want to be, you know, we don't need to talk about numbers here. But let's just say that this time last week we had zero listeners. And now we have exponentially more than zero. So that's something, right? It is something. And I take uh, one of my favorite shows from the last 20 years, hilarious, offering Flight of the Concords. Yeah, great show. and Flight of the Conquerors, those guys had how many fans? One, one, really. I believe it was they one had fan. One yeah. fan, correct? And so that's, that's my goal. One fan. Yeah. As I think we talked about this last week, but as an as a, you know, instructor, we always talk about just needing to reach that one person. If we can just get that one person. So Absolutely. same thing with a podcast, I think. We could just get one listener. We've, we've done our job. Mm-hmm. The world's a different world now that our podcast is out there. I don't know that for sure because I haven't been outside. <laughs> but I'm guessing if I went outside, things would be dis- just a, a tad different because of, of what we put out into the world. Because of history against the grain. There you go. All right. So it's time for everyone's favorite segment. It's our love-hate segment. Um, do you want to go first with love or should I go first with hate? I think we should always finish with love, don't you? You know, we're a couple of natural born lovers. So let's do our venting and then finish with the Venting first, love second. Okay. Bad news before good news. Got it. All right. So I'm going to start then. You did hate last time. Uh, You caused a lot of controversy. Yes, I did. And I'm still burning. So yeah, we had one text that really just, you know, (laughs) dug into you on that one. But, uh, you know, that that's, that's okay. We got, we got to be willing to accept the the hate when we put the hate, hate out of the world. that hate creates. I get it. There you go. That's it. It feels like, you know, we're, we're the object lesson. This was Gandhi was talking about when you, you put out hate, you're going to get hate in return. You put out violence, you're going to get violence in return. So well, we got to expect this. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm going to go after, you went after three, at least two, we'll say two and a half. Right. icons of American film. I'm, Donald Sutherland, I'm not, not sure 
still not sure of his uh, his role in the zeitgeist. But uh, I'm going to go after an entire region here, and that's Boston. Ooh. I lived in Boston for five years, uh, and I, I had a good experience there. I went to school there, uh, met a lot of nice people, continue to, to know those people and like those people. But there's things about Boston that that continue to annoy me, anger me, and bring up this uh, this hate, at least this this fake hate as we're kind of presenting here. So we can start with just Boston movies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out, you, you made these points about beloved Tom Hanks and Morgan Freeman. I'm going to make a point that there's never been a good movie filmed in Boston. Every, <laughs> every movie set in Boston is a bad movie. And the reason for that is because it involves actors who are trying to do Boston accents and can't do them. <laughs> or it involves actors from Boston or the Massachusetts area who see this as their chance to finally pretend to be working class Southies and they get to put on their work, working class accent and get kind of the, the false valor of, uh, of that working class existence, even though they grew up in Brookline or Newton or some Tony suburb of, of Boston. So they just never works. Uh, my favorite example or my least favorite is Ben Affleck's The Town, a bank robbing movie, I believe. I think John Hamm, right? Uh, John Hamm was that, that's right. Batman. He might have done a bad Boston accent. I don't really remember it now. Yeah, I think so. It yeah, sort of bled into maybe Brooklyn at times or even um, maybe Borat or something. It's, it's, a hard, it's a hard to get accent. I wish actors would just make it so their characters weren't actually from Boston. They moved there later in their life and they didn't have to do the accent. But, uh, but they love chewing up that accent. So, yeah, so that movie is an example. Cheers is good. I will say Cheers is good, but that's, that's not a movie. That's TV. I right. can't think of a single good movie. Um, Goodwill Hunting. I think that movie has aged terribly. <laughs> uh, you know, I love Robin Williams. Very tragic when he died, but that performance is, that's a, one of the worst Boston accents ever, actually. Um, so we got that. We got the movies, well, terrible there's films. There's a problem with, with Ben and, and, and Matt Damon coming out of the Harvey uh, Weinstein Ooh, thing, yeah. too, right? I mean, that's right, 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 right. an additional strike. Absolutely. Um, so we got that. Boston sports, just a complete wasteland of horribleness. Uh, the Celtics, the worst. Those green jerseys everybody loves, terrible. Fenway Park, it's old, that's fine. You can like old stuff, but it's a terrible ballpark. Makes no sense. The seats are facing the wrong direction. There's poles in front of you when you're trying to watch the game. There's that stupid wall in left field that makes no sense. Get rid of it. We need a new park there. And then lastly, this is Boston adjacent, I have to be, to be clear, but, but Harvard University. Um, I increasingly feel that virtually every problem our country is facing is because we've given these Harvard graduates the idea that they have some kind of, uh, that they have some kind of privilege or role to play in our society. And I increasingly feel like the, the worst serial kill, killer in American history has done less damage than a sociopath with a Harvard degree. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg that's didn't eat actually Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have his degree. What's that? <laughs> that's a well, there, there's your Harvard sociopath. Uh, yeah, there you go. Zuckerberg does, doesn't have a degree, but um, he got out early and went on to do. You could make the case that he's done more damage to this country and the world than I don't know, name your worst serial killer in, in American history. He's done more damage uh, legally and while making billions of dollars than, than uh, these guys that every single Netflix show seems to be about now. Worse damage than the movies of Steven Spielberg? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a, I love the Indiana, Indiana Jones movies. Racist as they often are, by the way. Uh, we were talking about this at dinner the other day in uh, Temple of Doom. Boy, that's just like an object lesson in Orientalism. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I do have some love for Spielberg. He's got to stop making World War II movies, as we talked about. But uh, okay. he, he's well, done some useful stuff. Okay, sure. All right, so there's my hate. Well, Boston. you know, and let me suggest too the other. If I can pile on, and yeah. I, I don't know if in the rules of our our rubric here it's allowed, but I'm going to try. Is the problem with Harvard grads? They tend to go back to work for Harvard. It all seems pretty incestuous. Oof, that just gets me. Yeah, we could go on for 20 more minutes now because I read this thing years ago that made the case that that Harvard University wasn't a university with a hedge fund. It was a hedge fund that happened to have a university attached to it. <laughs> And that's, that's kind of styled my view of, uh, of Harvard ever since. But let's get to love, right? That's, that's hate. I feel bad now. 
That's what hate does. I feel terrible about myself now because of all this hate I put out in the world. So you gotta, you gotta fix us. I'm gonna cleanse your palate. Cleanse us, that's, that's right. The moment of love, uh, the moment of love that starts by acknowledging that much of what happened in the 1980s, my least favorite decade, um, was I think incredibly lame, musically speaking. And I know I'm going to get letters on this one, uh, but one of the the favorite targets I have is the Celebrity Benefit album. Uh, and of those, my favorite target is the We Are the World uh, album. And We Are the World is is uh, we're playing off that for the title of our podcast today for reasons that will become clear. But let me say this. That was nothing but a hammy celebrity look at me uh, vanity fest with a bunch of past their expiration date singers showing up. I can only remember poor Bob Dylan sitting there looking mortified as they were singing the chorus of We Are the World, which had all this false humility but was really just a kind of narcissism in vinyl from these these do-gooding celebrity musicians now the corrective to that and here's where the love comes in because you might be thinking chris this is the love segment you the put love, love and hate come but there's this, it's there's this binary right you can't have love without hate is that true thank you thank you because i I'm, I'm getting to what i would call the crescendo moment of our love hate which was the benefit, uh, not really a benefit really. It, it, was a, it was an album brought together by Little Steven, the uh, guitar player in the Bruce Springsteen band. Um, the little gypsy uh, looking, uh, sort of idiosyncratic musician we know as Little Steven, who got into his Rolodex and created a kind of benefit album, if you will, for um, what was called Artists Against Apartheid. Uh, and the lead single from that, think of this as, as We Are the World, but insanely cool and not lame. Uh, the artists he brought together for the song Ain't Gonna Play Sun City. Sun City was the notorious resort in South Africa in the days of apartheid that brought in, you know, big name celebrities to do uh, concerts for exclusively white uh, audiences. And the idea was to boycott Sun City and put pressure on the apartheid regime in South Africa. And the song, Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, featured this unbelievably cool assemblage of not just like We Are The World, you know, the over the hill songsters, but I mean, we had rappers together with rockers for the first time, edgy guys, you know, we had great Miles Davis, you know, the jazz legend. We even had punk rockers. Joey Ramone is on this song. And so, you know, big ups to little Steven for bringing together this eclectic mix of, of edgy, still committed artists to sing, you know, this badass uh, uh, song directed straight at the apartheid regime in, in South Africa. And so I would encourage everyone to go back and find, go back and find, uh, ain't going to play Sun City. And you'll see what I mean. And, and keep in mind, too, it was just a, a few years later that we, uh, we saw the end of the apartheid regime. I'm not saying it was, of course, due to this one song, uh, but it had its moment. And uh, seeing Nelson Mandela walk through those gates with his fist raised high was, uh, you know, was, was an indelible moment for all of us. So, yeah, loving little Stephen and the artists against apartheid. That's great. That's a great example. I, I don't remember that, actually. Uh, I am an 80s child, certainly. Remember We Are the World. Remember the, the much worse British version, which actually was first, but the uh, Don't They Know It's Christmas, <laughs> which is a weird thing to sing to a continent that's not necessarily Christian. But, um, <laughs> but I, do, I, lo- I love the idea that, uh, that boycotting Sun City is a very tangible thing you can do, as opposed to you know, a song that raises money and it's kind of, where's this money going and how is it helping? Right you know, making this very clear and, and actionable point that artists should not play this place that is serving this apartheid regime. I think that makes it an extra cool, uh, you know, kind of idea. Well said. All right. So we talked a little bit about, um, about this pandemic we're going through. 
in terms of kind of personal reflections, but you had some points you wanted to make on a, on a more global sense about living in the age of pandemic. So let's, let's get into that. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to. So thank you uh, for that invitation. Uh, you know, I want to point out there's, a, there's an article in The Current New Yorker by Jill Lepore, who happens to be a historian at your favorite university, uh, Harvard. So try to, try to ignore that for a second. Uh, and Jill Lepore writes about uh, how plagues have often inspired creative efforts uh, by writers and, and artists and poets and such. John Keats wrote poetry in an age of plague. Uh, Mary Shelley wrote a, her second novel in an age of plague. Uh, and it got me thinking, you know, about how we as the storytelling animal uh, have crafted our histories uh, in particular. Uh, and, and thinking about that in this time of plague has, has brought me to, I think, you know, certain realizations uh, about how we do history. In other words, so quarantine as I have been and, and had time as I have to think about these things. Uh, one of the conclusions I've reached is that, you know, our histories are overwhelmingly, uh, the formal word would be anthropocentric. Uh, in other words, human-centered. We have to be the stars of every history we tell. Uh, we are relentlessly self-examining and self-interested in the histories that we write. And I think, you know, you can trace it all the way back to some of the famous sort of early pronouncements. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of that especially ego-centered moment in chapter 1, verse 28 of the, uh, of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and God blessed them meaning man, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Okay, so the famous dictum, you know, where man accepts graciously this open invitation by an all-powerful God to be the center of his own story forever. Um, and what geologists call the Anthropocene, uh, the era of man uh, in geologic time, as we're going to see, has been the result, basically. Uh, and these two, and I call them conceits, Josh, uh, promised in Genesis, dominion over the earth on the one hand and the commandment to be fruitful and multiply on the other, uh, have been the cause, the, the cause of much... Um, much disturbance and much destruction, uh, including coming back around now to the time we live in, to the proliferation of, of plagues. Uh, first of all, you know, dominion over the earth. I mean, what? I, look, if, if I were writing this as a text message, it would be ha 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 ha, you know? Uh, what could be less historically accurate? You know, I mean, this one, this one tops Columbus discovered America and Lincoln freed the slaves. Two, two classics, yeah. Yeah, for an outrageous, look, the earth, I checked with my daughter, biology teacher, by the way, Lisa Padgett, earth is 4.5 billion years old. Humankind, uh, let's say homo sapiens, what would you give us? I think now they're saying maybe 300,000 years. Okay, we're stretching it maybe out to 300,000 years. So 300,000 years, dominion over the earth. The earth is 4.5 billion years old. And, and I was and I was provoked, you know, by, I saw the Rolling Stone, the new Rolling Stone cover. It's a striking cover. It features um, our, our favorite uh, um, eco-warrior, uh, Greta Thunberg, right? Uh, but the caption on the cover, now or never, the race to save the planet. And I well, thought, that's all we want to do is save the planet. Exactly. And, the planet. We're the, and we're the ones to do it, are we not? Of course. I think our record has shown. I think, you know, the Benefit album, We Are the World, made that plain. We just re-release that. We are that. the world, right? Re-release it. We'll be good. So again, drawing upon my very talented uh, biology teacher daughter, Lisa Paget, you know, and said, Lisa, am I crazy? And she said, no. Look, I tell my students all the time, we need Earth, but Earth certainly does not need us. 
And yet our insistence at putting ourselves at the middle, this this human-centric, this anthropocentric story of the history, makes it seem as if we are the world. And and in reality, Josh, what I'm arguing in my moment here is that we've been nothing, we humans have been nothing if not pestiferous and bothersome and created a fair amount of havoc along the way. Uh, And that has included, you know, in part spreading spreading plagues, you know. but the idea that somehow the earth itself is in jeopardy, I think, is what gets us into trouble, you know, with this. Uh, and so here's, here's where I want to introduce a key figure uh, that will help us bridge the divide, I think, of this human-centric story. And his name, he's a Dutchman, Antony van Leeuwenhoek. Uh, a Dutchman famous from the 17th century for doing something rather simple but extraordinary. He took a a glass container, he dipped it into a nearby lake, he carted it home, he put it under his homemade uh, microscope, uh, that is a contrivance he had put together using some lenses that he had crafted. He he was a, a merchant, he wanted a way to look more closely at thread to judge the quality of thread. But he thought, what else can I look at up close? And so he looks at a drop of water from the lake. And and what did he see? I assume he saw a lot of life. Absolutely. What we would call microbes or bacteria. What he called little animals. Animacula. That's adorable, Uh, by the way. I I wish we called microbes little animals. (laughs) That's what you call your kids. Uh, Why was this so extraordinary? A whole world in a drop of water as one described it. Well, because before Lewinhook did this, this was a world nobody had ever seen and had no recorded knowledge of. You know, for all the time of, of, of all of man's time on Earth up until about 300 years ago, we didn't even know this world of microorganisms existed. So, so much for dominion over the Earth, right? A pr- pretty sorry excuse for dominion. And so here we meet up with the second conceit of that storytelling, particularly the fruitful and multiply, uh, multiply part. Our success as a species, uh, multiplying, has not been unrelated to the success of microorganisms, for example. And there's been a great article in the New York Times by the science writer Carl Zimmer. And Zimmer makes the point that there's 39 known species of coronavirus, the one, uh, one of which we're facing now with COVID-19. Uh, 250 species of virus that choose human beings as hosts. Now, now, wait a minute, before we pride ourselves on how many viruses love us, keep, keep in mind that this is a tiny, tiny fraction uh, of the total number of virus species, 100 million virus species infect animals, plants, fungi, protozoans, and don't even bother with human beings. Another 100 million, it's thought, uh, infect prokaryotes, the single-celled microbes. The true figure, ultimately, says Zimmer in the article, uh, maybe as high as 10 trillion species of virus. And, and so this had me thinking, do viruses have their own Bible with their own Lord God virus who has created them in his image, commanding them to be uh, have dominion over the earth and to, to be fruitful and, and multiply? Because in a way, that makes at least as much sense. The triumph of the virus sphere as does the triumph of mankind. So, yeah, so for all their egocentric species storytelling, humans are very late to the party and perhaps no more than a pesky player on the world stage. And the thing is, our time may be up. <laughs> the sixth extinction, as my daughter put it, is well underway. And I think it gets back to that creative impulse of writing about plagues. And that's why I like the little poor article in The New Yorker, you know, Mary Shelley's novel, The Last Man. Farewell to the giant powers of man. That seems to be almost the same conclusion that geologists and biologists are are coming to. And so I wanted to read uh, just a short quote from a book called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Culbert, won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. And from the perspective of a geologist, a hundred million years from now, all that we consider to be the great works of man, the sculptures and the libraries, the monuments and the museums, the cities and the factories, will be compressed into a layer of sediment 
geological sediment, not much thicker than a cigarette paper. And I think this kind of puts things in, in perspective, you know, about our time on earth and our centrality, this idea of dominion, etc. And what I would suggest as I finish my, my screed here is that, you know, maybe our best shot is to set aside the histories of priests and prophets and politicians and, and preachers uh, and pick up the stories now told by ecologists and microbiologists and epidemiologists, uh, the histories that demographers and geographers and oceanographers tell and others whose stories are steeped in the real histories of our planet and not the vanity tales of man. That's where we're likely, I think, to find our best and, and truest perspective. Yeah, I mean, we just have, I think there's 10 to 15 more World War II movies that need to be get, get made first. But I think once we're done with that, then we can get these, these uh, histories that get humans out of it. And then there's, you know, we got 15 more books on the Civil War probably need to be written still. Once we're through that, though, I think we can turn to the geologist and the epidemiologist and the, the true history of, of the Earth. Well, and that's a nice segue into our next uh, segment here, because, you know, as you've pointed out many times, those World War II and World War I movies almost always feature the, the exclusive vantage point of the European or American soldiers and not the tens of thousands of non-Westerners, colonial soldiers, et cetera, who died and sacrificed on those fields as well. Somehow they, they never quite get into the, <laughs> into the script. And so- They were just off screen, I think, when they, uh, just off <laughs> I camera. Wanna, yeah, I wanna invite you now to, to sort of build on these themes uh, as you talk about uh, your idea of, of how to, to decolonize world history, think of this as your drum solo. Right. I'm going to be uh, Ringo in the end, his famous drum solo, only drum solo in his, his Beatles career. Didn't go well in my mind, but, uh, but he got his chance and we all need to get that chance. So here's my Ringo chance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, live up to it in a way that maybe he, he didn't. I love Ringo, by the way. No offense, Ringo, if you're listening. We all love Ringo. Absolutely. So what I want to do then is talk about, I, and I will say, I don't have a solution to this. This is a, a problem stated, not a problem answered. Uh, my, my graduate advisor used to always say, um, you know, about, about, you know, the historical work. Sometimes it, to be able to ask good questions is as important as finding good answers to those questions, which yes. I always use a good out when I was writing. Yeah, I don't know the answer, but I asked a good question so I can w wash my hands of having to do that, the extra work. But um this is one of those cases where I'm, I'm going to, you know, be posing some, some challenges, uh, but not necessarily answering those challenges. But we can start with just the fact, you were just talking about dominion in this kind of biblical sense. In the 19th century, a few European states, later joined by the United States and Japan to a, to a certain extent as well, were able to grasp a dominion over the earth, the politi a political dominion over the earth, uh, that was been un that's unmatched in, in, in human history. Uh, you could make a case that 20th century United States uh, was more powerful in some ways, even as we didn't control as much land. But the fact remains that in this formative period of, of history, when the modern world was really coming into being, it came into being really under the auspices of a European or Western domination. Um, there's an historian named Jürgen Osterhammel, who's written these books about colonialism, about the 19th century, just had a recent book about the 19th century, world history of the 19th century. And he kind of laid out the, the hold that Europe had over the, the world during the 19th century, which he calls the European century. I don't think he's alone in that, but he used that term. He says, Europe's hold over others was threefold. It had power, which it often deployed with ruth ruthlessness and violence. So that's traditional kinds of power, the kind of imperial power we expect to find. Big Roman armies and big Chinese armies running roughshod over uh, you know, other peoples and, and claiming territory. So that's the traditional kind of power. But he adds also, it, meaning Europe, had influence, which it knew how to spread through the countless channels of capitalist expansion. There's an economic aspect to this as well. And then lastly, he talks about the force of example, against which even many of its victims did not balk. So that, you know, uh, resistors in, in what became Vietnam, in Algeria, in India, in what becomes Nigeria, you can push back against the power deployed with ruthlessness and violence. You can stand up to that, whether successfully or not, there's a path forward at least. There's a form of resistance that exists. How you push back against these countless channels of capitalist expansion, and then particularly 
how you push back against the force of example is a much harder thing to do. And so this ends up being, to me, the real legacy of, of that 19th century imperialism, not just the kind of physical manifestations of power that we see. If you look at a map today, you can see empire written on that map. You can see this weird, look at Indonesia sometime on a map. And you, you see it's just this random, almost seeming collection of, of territories that sometimes cover entire islands, sometimes cover parts of islands, contains uh, X number of tiny islands and then not other islands nearby. And you can very easily see the role of empire, that this was carved out specifically by the Dutch. And what Indonesia ends up being is the territory the Dutch could, could control in Southeast Asia. So you can see those kind of things, those physical manifestations of power. But what we need to do if we're really going to decolonize world history, if we're really going to pull back from the, the bonds of, of European power and hegemony and authority, is we got to look at the, the, the elements of that power that are harder to see. And that's cultural. And that's intellectual. And that's the legacy that, that's so hard to, to remove here. And so particularly when you do the modern world history class, one of the real challenges is you want to tell a story that's inclusive. We want to tell a story that gives people agency because the traditional way of talking about these kind of things is you have the active Europeans and you have the passive everyone else, right? Everyone else is just waiting to be discovered, waiting to be conquered, waiting to be brought into the story, but they've got to wait for the Europeans to get there before they can be part of the story. And even then they're bit players in their own story. So the one thing we need to do, and this is, I think the more obvious thing is to include these people not as passive victims, but as active players and active participants in the story of the 19th century and of the modern world. That there's a, a conversation going on, certainly, between European colonizers and the colonized that's important and it's constructive in the sense that it's building stuff through that conversation, not just through domination, not just through imposition of things upon them. So that's part of the story as well. But the other problem is, and this is the one that's, I think, even harder to solve, is that so much of the way we think about the world today is because of the way Europeans build the world. And in this sense, I mean this kind of intellectual world. The Europeans bring certain assumptions with them when they go into, the empire, into empire, and they leave those assumptions behind when they leave. And one of the biggest ones of, one of, the, one of those assumptions is the idea of objectivity, which has become such a, a kind of buzzword. We see this all the time, particularly in journalism, this idea that we want our journalists to be objective. Right? We want our journalists to have this remove from the stories that they're, that, they're, um, that they're writing. It's certainly something we see in history as well, that we want our historians to be objective and they want our historians to essentially discover an objective past. I was having a, a, a conversation, a text conversation with my wife's cousin because he had listened to the first podcast and we were kind of going back and forth. It was a really, really uh, good conversation. I'm using conversation quotes. It was text mainly, but um, he was talking about uh, you know, objectivity. And I responded that I, I don't believe in objectivity, that it's not something that we should be really seeking out. It's not a real thing. And essentially, when I think about objectivity, what I'm thinking about is an invention of Europeans in the modern age, something that they brought with them as they go out to these, these colonies. And it was used as a way to control what knowledge and ideas were legitimate and which ones were not legitimate. And the shocking thing here, you probably should sit down for this, the shocking thing is that the ideas they considered to be objective were those that supported the existing power structures. That all those ideas that they brought with them, uh, they found to be objective and therefore true and therefore important. All those ideas held by the colonized people that did not support that structure were illegitimate, were subjective, and needed to be done away with. And so I think what we're seeing is that in the context of history, there's no essential past that exists as separate and distinct from the present, that the present always exists in the past. And as historians, we got to do our best to try to figure out how to understand the past, not as an objective reality that can be recovered, but as something that kind of is relevant to our own, to our own day. Um, so what we see, I think, in these empires is that Europeans are constantly trying to collect knowledge about them. This becomes a very 19th century thing. To me, it's one of the things that marks the modern world more than anything else, is that in the pre-modern world, there's all kinds of ambiguity. Right? There's all kinds of fuzzy lines, I like to say, between categories, between people, between states, borders are fuzzy, identities are fuzzy. And then the modern world comes along, this European-dominated modern world, and 
that modern world seeks to get rid of all that, uh, that, that uh, ambiguity. It seeks to get rid of those fuzzy lines and draw clear ones in their place. And knowledge was one way of doing that. You know, we often think of this, this kind of aphorism that knowledge is power as an affirmation, that if we can gain knowledge, then we will have power. But that, that idea also is that knowledge just, doesn't just give us power, but knowledge gives people power over us as well. And that's, this is very much the way it's going to play out in the colonies. Knowledge gave, you know, these white colonizers the ability to rule, the right to rule, the necessity to rule, especially compared to the, quote, ignorant savages that they're ruling over. Um, and so you see across these empires, all these censuses and surveys and anthropological studies, and all these were just tools that provided the, necess- the, uh, the knowledge necessary for rule. And the idea was, if we can collect this knowledge, then we can rule over them in a more effective way than they could ever rule over themselves. Effectively, what they're saying is that we know them better than they can ever know themselves because we can see them from outside. We can see them objectively. Yes. Because of the objectivity that we bring to the task. Okay, yes. We bring objectivity. They can't be objective about themselves because they're themselves. And so just a couple examples of this. Um, In the 1880s, 1885, um, in India, there was a founding of this, this... hugely important nationalist organization called the, the Indian National Congress. It's called the INC often. And this is formed as, as really the first broadly based nationalist organization in the country. Prior to that, they were kind of nationalist thinkers, but they tended to think in sociocultural terms. So you get Bengali leaders who are talking to Bengalis and you get people from Maharashtra speaking to other Marathas and you get you know various communities basically speaking to themselves. But the INC was this organization that it had, I think, 73 delegates in its first meeting. Uh, those delegates were Hindus and Parsis and Jains, and there were some Muslims there, and they came from the north and south and east and west. And the idea was that they were going to build this organization that truly represented India. Now, the viceroy at this time, the viceroy of India, was a guy named Dufferin. Every viceroy of India has the most British name possible, by the way. Mm-hmm. But Viceroy Dufferin, uh, when he heard of the INC, mocked its members as, quote, a microscopic minority of self-selected and self-serving Indians and claim that, quote, only the British could properly govern the majority of 200 million mostly illiterate peasants. And essentially what he's saying is that Indians lack the objectivity to properly govern themselves. It took outsiders to do that, to do, to do that instead. And so in this sense, his, his idea, Dufferin's idea that the knowledge he had, the knowledge he had gained of India gave him dominion over India is something that's repeated again and again and again in these colonies. Knowledge is power, but knowledge is also the thing that gives us power over in these cases. And my favorite, favorite example of this is a story that a uh, anthropologist named Nicholas Thomas told in a book, I think it was called uh, Colonialism's Culture, I think is the name of the book. I tried to find it the other day and I couldn't, couldn't find it in my attic full of books that I haven't looked at in years. Um, but uh, he talks about this, this story of, of British-ruled Fiji. So in 1874, the British um, annexed this island of Fiji. Um, they ended up essentially sending Indian laborers there to work in the sugar plantations. And so you get this colony made up of native Fijians and then this very large Indian population as well. And then over the next decade and a half or so, uh, they actually had to learn to rule over Fiji, the British did. And so what they did is their favorite te- technique, they took censuses and surveys. And in one particular survey, it's a massive survey, basically they asked every village headman throughout the island, um, everything about themselves, right? They were going to learn everything they could about the Fijians. And by doing so, they're going to learn how to rule them better. And so it was this huge amount of information. They asked about family relations. They asked about tribal relations. They asked about kinship. They asked about economy. They asked about agriculture. They asked about everything you can think of this survey asked. And then it was all compiled and it became this, this document that could be handed out to new, uh, you know, functionaries and bureaucrats when they arrived in Fiji. So this had all been done. I believe we're now in the 1890s or so. And a British official, new, new to the country, he had done his work. Not all officials did their work. A lot of them just showed up and enjoyed the life as be, of being a person in power, despite having no particular qualities that should give them power. Uh, but a, a lone British official decided to take a ride through the countryside. And while doing that, he encountered a lone hut, a single hut. And there was a family busily tending their garden and raising their pigs, right? Just it, you can see this kind of this idyllic scene, this family living close together, working side by side, making something of themselves, for themselves rather. 
But the official was flabbergasted by this because he had just read the results of the survey and the survey said that Fijians lived in villages. And here was this hut living on it, you know, all by itself, no other people around. And this went against everything he had learned. So this is a contradiction. And the British love nothing more than solving contradictions. And because he had objective knowledge about the Fijians, his solution was he ordered the family to tear down their hut and relocate their home to a village so that they would cease to live in an incorrect manner. And so essentially this British official had uh, pulled rank on the Fijians, told them they were not being proper Fijians and needed to get their shit together if they were <laughs> going to live properly within this, uh, within this empire. So there's objectivity for you. Objectivity creating these, these categories. But the thing that, that ends up being so significant here is that these censuses and surveys are not just used for the purpose of rule. They're not just used in this, this sense of, of telling Fijians what to do. But this stuff gets written down. And this become, these become the base of anthropological studies. And those studies end up becoming the sources for later studies. Uh, you know, in a place like Fiji, there is no written past that precedes, that precedes the arrival of, of the British colonizers. So much of what later people know about pre-colonial Fijians is going to come from these anthropological studies. And when you hear stories like that, you start realizing, what, what is the truth here? What do we actually, what do we actually know about this? And how can we extricate, extricate the actual story or something like an actual story uh, from that which was created in, um, in the minds of these British imperialists? Same thing we see in India as well. Um, you know, it's so traditional when you talk about India in, you know, maybe the ancient world history class where you talk about caste. Right. Have you, you've done that, I'm sure. Right. Talk no, about absolutely. caste. Yeah. But there's a lot to indicate that caste didn't matter that much in India for most of Indian history. The caste existed. There was a sense of it, but it was also a very fluid system. It was one that people didn't necessarily uh, preside over. Uh, there seems to have been a lot of movement in it. How much people cared about it seems to have depended on where you were, when you were, uh, what caste you were in, what you did. We see all the time that certain occupations move up and down the caste system. The thing that made the caste system the caste system, the one we teach about in world history, and I would say wrongly often in world history, is the British king. And the British, as I said, are so obsessed with this idea of collecting knowledge and using their, their knowledge to rule. And one of the things they did is they took these censuses. And censuses are not just collections of information, but they're also... Uh, creating knowledge as well. And in these senses, one of the questions they would ask people is what caste they were a part of. And by doing that, what the British essentially did is they reified the caste system. They made something that was fluid and dynamic and ever-changing into something that was fixed and eternal. And so caste identity, which, you know, even in the late Mughal period was something that we can kind of see movement in. We see all the time people claiming caste they don't seem to have real had a real claim to once the british take these surveys and write this stuff down it becomes real it becomes something that is is official and at that point caste does become this unchanging system that we often describe in our classes right and so this is just this this example of how the modern world the contemporary world i should say still has the marks of imperialism that it's 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 a, it's a challenge because we have to recognize on the one hand, you can't talk about world history without talking about Europeans because it's so essential to what's happening. On the one hand, they're imposing authority on all these places. On the other hand, people are reacting to that authority. It's a big part of the story. On the other hand, we want to be able to tell a story that doesn't just focus on what Europeans do. We want to tell a story that tries to extricate the peoples, uh, the cultures, the societies, from this history that was largely told by the colonizers themselves. Um, because one aspect that we're also, we also see, and it's our own subject that's, that's uh, tied up in this as well, that history itself in terms of a professional uh, you know, study, a professional discipline that you go to university, you get your uh, bachelor's, you get your master's, you get your PhD. This is also an invention of 19th century Europeans. And if you go to these uni universities in India, universities across the world, what they basically have done is created history departments based around these models of the old German universities of the 18th century, 19th century, American universities of the 19th century, that they're basically doing history in the way that Westerners taught people to do history. And I would argue that much of our own field 
has also been colonized and also needs to be decolonized in the same way. That the assumptions we make about how you do history and how you think about history is so tied into the way we learn history in the first place. Yeah, don't, so, you, don't, yeah. don't you think history has been one of the last to go? I mean, if you think of other, you know, uh, forms of, of artistic or cultural expression, you know, the painters had their postmodernism, you know, the poets, the, the novelists, at where, where essentially they recognize the fallacy of objectivity, you know, in other words, because they were steeped in that same tradition. I would take it all the way back to the Renaissance, but certainly, yeah, in the time of the, the you know, the empires and scientific positive and positivism and that sort of thing. But historians really haven't. We haven't really had our postmodern. I mean, the school you went to, Santa Cruz, had Hayden White, right, doing meta history, but it did, yeah. But the it didn't whole really catch history on. of consciousness. We had a school called History of Consciousness, a department name. Uh, Is that right? And it doesn't seem to have really caught on. And we're still trained in that tradition that you described coming out of the late nineteenth century. You know, uh, for lack of you know, for uh, objectivism. You know, right. and uh, I, you know, one of my favorites. You know pieces from the 20th century, Sigmund Freud's civilization is discontents, you know, because yeah. he's basically making the same argument. You are, um, you know, in the context of World War I, demolishing the false god of objectivism, uh, objectivity. And, and even the, the book I give my students, Kurt uh, Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, you know, the first thing he starts with, you know, the guy who lived through the firebombing of Dresden, right? The first sentence of his novel is, all of this happened more or less. Yeah. You know, no, so that's, that's, yeah. So where true. do we go uh, with this as historians? Where do you see us going with this? It, it's so hard because again, you know, we have these. I think you know, at our our level, particularly in community college, we're we're mainly instructors. We're not researching. We're not writing. We do have this. Um, we got to tell a story, right? You got to keep people engaged, and those stories are engaging. But we got to figure out ways around around that. And one thing I actually hit upon, uh, I think it was maybe last semester. Is, is using a lot of the works of um, this kind of African diaspora community, um, particularly guys who, who grew up in, in French empire, uh, Amy Césaire, Franz Fanon, you know, you, you come across those guys before? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, so Fanon has a lot of good stuff about this, but Amy Césaire has this thing, um, I don't have the book in front of me, I'm blanking on the title, but we'll put it in our, in our description though. Um, he's got this thing about, um, he's writing in the post-World War II period, and he's saying, he says basically the thing that's so shocking, was so shocking to Europeans about Hitler and the Nazis is they were turning against themselves, against your other Europeans, the techniques Europeans had been using in the colonies, right? So that if you came from the colony, nothing was shocking about what happened in the 30s and 40s because you saw this happening all the time in Africa and places and, and you know, in, in other colonies around the world. Um, but the fact that this was now being done to Europeans was the thing that really blew the, you know, the, the Western world away. How could they do this to us? When virtually everything the Nazis had been doing were things that had been tried out first, you know, in German Southwest Africa. And, uh, you know, the first concentration camps you can make the case are in British South Africa. Um, all these tactics and techniques of the, of the Nazis came from somewhere, basically. And that's Amy Cesare's point, is that Western civilization was never leading us to this, this place of, of progress and utopia. It was always on our, it was always leading to this collapse of civilization. Um, and so when you hear the, that perspective, it really just, you know, for, for someone who's kind of been brought up with, obviously within the Western world and with these certain assumptions, you realize how important it is to hear different perspectives because they're going to see things totally differently than somebody brought up within the traditions, within the kind of cultures that um, tend to think of something like World War II in a very particular way. Yeah. So that's just one thing that I've done recently that I thought, well, and your point, yeah, I mean, is well taken about, so how do we translate that into stories for our students and teaching and, you know, I mean, as, as a practitioner of the hidebound U.S. history survey, uh, you know. Which should live forever, right? I, do I remember your argument, right? That survey should live forever? I guess I didn't make myself clear. Oh. Uh, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the most hidebound of those hidebound traditions is the story of Western expansion, you know? And, and so I can just feel, I could feel it going up my back, Josh, you know, when I would start that part of the U S survey, just the very 
collection of words, westward expansion. It's so passive, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it predetermined the narrative. You couldn't, if you, if you start out with westward expansion, there's only one story you can really tell. And so I struggled with that. And I found this, this uh, when I was doing world history, it's world history that got me back into this, you know, this wonderful um, uh, piece by a, a Lakota author named Joseph Marshall, who was telling the story of the Lakota at the time of Anglo uh, militarized reconnaissance. See how I change it from westward expansion to Anglo militarized <laughs> reconnaissance across yeah, like the it. country. And he told it from the Lakota perspective. And so the, you know, the whites weren't whites, they were Washikas. You know, they were they were a disagreeable presence. And so the language, you know, bringing the Lakota language into the story changed the narrative. And what did it look like from the other side of that frontier line? And you do get a very different but very rich and not marginalized example of something. You know, the, the Native Americans don't exist simply to be first vanquished and then saved. They have their own integrity, their own autonomy, their own history, their own voice. And uh, so I'm really interested in what you have to say about how we translate these, you know, into stories of the past. Yeah, I, you know, as you were talking, one thing that occurred to me is just this whole idea of, of civil, civilization and progress, I think, are, are two things that we need to, ex, we need to get rid of in, in these. I, I think I spend more and more time hitting against this notion that progress is, is something that exists, it's something that's real, it's something that can be tracked. Because when you tell the story of progress, then the end is already written, right? It's already, it's already built in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so increasingly, you know, you want to, I want to tell a story in which, um, in which civilization is no, not so obviously contained within, within the West. Because, you know, in the same way that you're talking about Westward expansion as this, this vital story that has to be told or is, is always told, I'll say, in the history of, of doing the U.S., I think there's something about the way that that civilization, Western civilization, proceeds around the world as a similarly progressive story that's that's told. And you know, you can I think a lot of histories note the viciousness, the violence, uh, the uh, persecution, all the kind of stuff that goes along with empire, while also talking about you know the, the spread of of Western civilization as, yeah, as maybe a good thing. Niall Ferguson, did you read the Niall Ferguson book? I know the book you're talking about. I, you know, my, what I was going to say, though, is that if you're going to use the, the framing device of civilization, you're already committed to that kind of narrative. Right. I mean, because even if you do a fight against civilization, you're still dealing with the, the primary terminology of the power broker. You, yes. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so I, I think one of the things I, I, I like to do now is just flip the, the ideas of civilization and savagery a little bit. Um, and use World War II as, oh, sorry, World War I is a good example of that, you know, World War I comes at the height of, of really imperial expansion. It's c- coming at just to the end of the scramble for Africa. Uh, I believe, you know, empires were at their most extensive at that point, these, these Western empires. And World War I ends up being the, this time in which you probably have the largest number of people from outside of Europe within Europe during those years, because you have all these mm-hmm. soldiers coming in from the colonized world, all these, uh, you know, laborers coming in from the colonized world. And these are people who've been told this story year after year after year in their home countries about, you know, the civilization of the West and the greatness of the West. And, you know, as, as Jürgen Ostermel talked about, there's this power of, of mimicry, right? That if they're powerful, then we need to learn what they do because they have civilization. And then all these people show up in Europe expecting to find civilization. Instead, what they find is savagery right? Savagery of the most vicious kind you can imagine. And these people who've been called savages and barbarians, uh, they've been, you know, kind of treated and dehumanized in all these ways, see that those who ruled over them didn't actually have claim to civilization, right? That in fact, if they have any claims, it's as the most savage people on the earth, engaging the most savage activity that you could possibly imagine. There's no amount of cannibalism, there's no amount of whatever has been charged against you know, peoples in, in Africa and Asia and in, in what becomes a colonized world that's as savage as what was going on in World War I or certainly World War II. And so telling that story that, that kind of flips the script a little bit and puts the Europeans yeah. in the savage camp and maybe says civilization uh, that comes out of Europe is not 
as enlightened as we would like to believe uh, well, is, well, you is a path forward there as well. More, one more Kurt Vonnegut reference. You know, sure. his, his novel Cat's Cradle introduces a new vocabulary. Uh, and one of the terms is a grand faloon. Yeah. And a grand faloon is an imagined ob objective community. And that doesn't, in fact, really exist. And so he says uh, a grand floon would include things like Hoosiers in Indiana. <laughs> yeah. The United States of America. <laughs> Another right. grand floon, I think, based on what you're saying, I would, I would say is civilization. Yeah, it's certainly. A, it's, an, it's an imagined community of no, noble intention and practice that doesn't, in fact, exist, which is what these people, these these other worlders from outside Europe are finding, as right. you say, when they arrive. Yeah. It's a grand flume. <laughs> Europe yeah. is a grand flume. Civilization is a grand flume. <laughs> it is. And it's always, a, it's always a term that's self, it's a self-identified term, right? Something you, you apply to yourself, um, which just goes back to that egocentrism that, that you were talking about uh, when, we, when we began this. So um, yeah, we got to, we got to get outside that. We've got to tell different stories. We've got to hear different voices and we've got to understand that, you know, these, these ideas that are so present and have been so uh, much a part of, of the way history has been thought about and taught and taught and written about, there's other ways to tell those stories. There's other voices we can hear. And when we hear those voices, the story really sounds very different uh, than, than the one we're, we're used to seeing. And I think, well, you know, yeah. We aren't the world. We are not the world. Uh, we never were. And uh, yeah, we're, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. But Let's uh, let's end with our quote because we got to end with a quote. And this quote, this quote, um, great drum solo, by the way. What's that? That's a great drum solo, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, you really beat the hell out of those drums. I, I try. My arms are tired. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give us a quote from Marx, Karl Marx, not 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 Groucho. Oh, good. I'm sure, he'll be quoted sometime in this in this sure. podcast. But so this is this is the point in time where where a lot of uh, we'll call them civilians, right? Non-historians. Are, are quoting that, um, that, that idea from uh, George Santayana, Santayana that uh, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. There's various versions um. of that, but that, I think that's the version I, I hear the most. Um. And the idea being that if we know history, we won't, we're not going to make mistakes, which is just... Ha ha ha. ha yeah, ha, yeah. <laughs> there, ha, there you go. doesn't hold up to any kind of scrutiny. I, I think history is important, certainly, but uh, not for the reasons that George Santayana uh, seemed to suggest. So I want to give you this quote from Marx because Marx has his own view of this. So he's got this famous quote um, that's usually paraphrased as history repeats itself once as tragedy and again as farce. Uh, and this comes from his, his, uh, this piece he wrote called The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. Uh, it's probably his most readable work in the sense that I've actually read it. But um, so that's the quote. That's the part of the quote that's often given. History repeats itself once as tragedy and again as farce. But the actual quote, or the longer quote rather, is, is I think more interesting and more relevant to what we're talking about here. He says, man makes his own history, but he does not make it out of, a whole, out, of, out of the whole cloth. He does not make it out of conditions chosen by himself, but out of such as he finds close at hand. The tradition of all past generations weighs like an alp upon the brain of the living. And there's, that's a, a dynamite quote just right there. The, the, uh, the tradition of all past generations weighs like an alp upon the brain of the living. At the very time when men appear engaged in revolutionizing things in themselves and bringing about what never was before, at such very epochs of revolutionary crisis do they anxiously conjure up into their service the spirits of the past, assume their names, their battle cries, their costumes to enact a new historic scene in such time-honored disguise and with such borrowed language. He's basically making the opposite point as Santanyana, who is saying we need to learn history so we don't, we don't repeat it, He's saying the problem is that we're too uh, ensconced, we're too attached to these stories that get told over and over again. And because we're so attached to these stories about history, we can't escape them. We constantly try to replicate them. And if history repeats itself, it's because we don't know how to get outside those stories that have been told to us for so long. And if we can escape from that past a little bit, if we can escape from these, these narratives that you, know, you talked about with the world, uh, US history that I was talking about with, with world history, then maybe we can actually make some real change and not keep repeating ourselves, not keep making the same mistakes. Um, but that's going to take a, uh, a, a, a real effort to change the narrative, to change the stories, to hear new voices um, and to tell a different kind of, uh, a different kind of history. 
Yeah, my friend, that's going to take a history against the grain. That's the name of the podcast. All right, guys, uh, this has been fun, and we will talk to you again. And we're going to try to do these bi-weekly, by the way. I don't think I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, we'll try to do it bi-weekly, but uh, episode three coming soon.